This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You ready? I was born ready. Happy Snyder Cut Day, Advisory Opinions listeners. I'm still it not is... totally sure I know what that is. Yeah, seriously? After all this time we've spent together, Sarah? Oh my goodness. It is March 18th, 2021, the culmination of a years-long crusade to bring to the silver screen what may be the most ultimate superhero film other than the Dark Knight trilogy. I mean, this is a major world event today and it's happening on hbo max it's a four-hour movie we have a dispatch live tonight everyone starting at 8 30 p.m eastern going for about an hour and i think i might set a land speed record sarah in the nine yard dash which is about the distance from my dispatch live chair to the couch in front of my television to watch the snyder cut Okay, well, speaking of other big things that happened this week, on Tuesday, the day after we taped our last podcast, there was huge breaking news out of the D.C. circuit. Can I read you the, the press release? I'm on pins and needles. I'm well, I mean, not aware not of this. It's not actually a press release. It's a notice. Okay. And it is titled, Preferred Typefaces for Briefs. Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 32A5 requires courts of appeals to accept briefs in any proportional typeface, so long as the typeface has serifs and is at least 14 point in size. However, the court has determined that certain typefaces, such as Century and Times New Roman, are more legible than others, particularly Garamond, which appears smaller than the other two typefaces. Today, the court announces a revision to the circuit's handbook of practice and internal procedures to encourage the use of typefaces that are easier to read and to discourage use of Garamond. <laughs> it was a straight attack on the Garamond font. And what is most hilarious about this notice, David, it is in a non-serif font. <laughs> so have we heard a response from the Garamond camp? We have not, but I just like, look at the, the balance, it says, to encourage the use of typefaces that are easier to read and to discourage, and it should be, use of typefaces that are harder to read. But no, it's encourage the use of typefaces that are easier to read and to discourage use of Garamond. <laughs> Amazing. That uh, is huge news, amazing. Sarah. It was huge. Yeah. Incredible. And I appreciate all of the listeners who immediately flagged it for me. Well, we're not just going to talk about fonts today. We have a special guest. We have uh, Chris Bogart, who is, how to describe, uh, a guy with a one of the more fascinating legal careers that you'll hear, um, a, a, a career so fascinating that he makes my case for me about the, the um, possibilities inherent in going to law school. And he makes and the case for me on what actually practicing commercial litigation is like. This guy became the general counsel of Time Warner at 32 years old, which is bonkers. And if you were an associate out there and you imagine yourself as general counsel at 32 years old, let me disabuse you of that notion. 1998 was a wild time. 
Yeah, it was a wild time. But you know uh, what you if you uh, don't do this, you can't be general counsel of Time Warner. If you don't go to law school, Sarah, <laughs> it wouldn't so have been true, in the but cards. This is a conversation about litigation funding, which is fascinating. It is really I mean, it is booming in the commercial litigation world right now for plaintiff side cases uh, instead of contingency fee work. So we're going to get into all of that, what all of that means when we talk to Chris later in this episode. But before we do that, uh, we're going to talk about a case that is burning up conservative media that a number of you guys have emailed us and asked us to specifically talk about it. And uh, it's a case that is called Gabrielle Clark versus the State Public Charter School Prep Authority, Democracy Prep Public Schools, Democracy Prep at the Agassiz Company, Agassiz Campus at Al. It is a case about critical race theory in secondary education. And um, a number of readers sent us the complaint. Thank you for that. This, this is a great point. If you're a reader and you want us to discuss a particular com- case and you've got a PDF of the complaint, please put it in the email. It makes us it makes it a lot easier. And so both Sarah and I have read this complaint and it's an interesting case. And it's an interesting case to actually circle back to some earlier discussions that we had. And the general facts are that this... Um, that uh, a plaintiff, William Clark, is a student at this uh, at a charter school, and this charter school had a curriculum a for uh, graduating seniors that was, uh, I would say, steeped in critical race theory components. Um, had an academic exercise as part of it where there was an optional disclosure of race, gender, and different kinds of identity categories. Um, an awful lot of this was sort of what you would call, um, I would say, I, I would say fairly, you would say it's kind of a far, a far left, um, not all of it, but some of it, um, a kind of a far left uh, argument about race and identity and oppression and privilege in the United States. And he challenged that he refused to participate in all aspects of this particular academic program. Um, it's really actually hard to trace exactly what happened and how he he ended up failing the class um but he's he uh was not given credit for the course or was warned that he wasn't going to receive credit for the course and he filed a lawsuit about this and so sarah just i I, i'd love we talked about this a little bit offline first what what were your top line impressions when you when you read this case it was heavy on the I don't like it and light mm-hmm. on the because it's unlawful. Right. I <clears throat> had a very hard time finding the actual legal claims. And when I did, uh, very little law involved. You know, this violates my First Amendment right. Well, do you have case law to back that up? Do you, I mean, in a in a real case where you actually expect to win and it's not a PR front, um, most of your brief should be the law and why this is unlawful. Very, very little of this complaint was on the law. Now, they have uh, dozens of pages of uh, examples of the curriculum, which I think some people are going to find you know, kind of a lot, I guess, is the best way to yeah. say it. Yeah, that's you know, that's why I said kind of far left some elements of it, yeah. It's, you know, the four eyes of, uh, of oppression, ideological, institutional, individual, and internalized. Um, you know, he has uh, one white parent and one black parent, and he says that he was basically told repeatedly to acknowledge his oppressor status uh, as from having a white parent, and he refused to do that. There's another problem with the complaint, though, which is like, yes, they included all of these uh, slides from the class. That, I believe, is all accurate. But of course, we also are, uh, you know, the vast majority of this complaint, as I said, is a lot of, I don't like it. And so we're having to take the student's word for it of what actually happened in class, things that were said to him, which I assume the school would uh, 
you know, have a different theory of what was said to him at times. There's a lot, you mentioned that him disclosing his race and religion and disability and gender and all of that was optional. It's presented in the complaint, that story several times. And it feels a little like catch 22, like the, the novel catch 22, not the catchphrase right. catch 22, where you tell the same story over and over again. And each time the story is a little bit different. Um, except yeah. in catch 22, the story gets darker and less funny. And this version, it just goes from at the beginning, it looked like it wasn't optional. And by the end, you're like, oh no, this was, this isn't part of his graded assignment at all. Why are we telling this story? Because again, from an, I don't like it standpoint, I understand, yeah. but from a lawfulness standpoint, this was not a graded assignment. It was optional. This shouldn't be included in the complaint at all. Yeah. So if, in fact, when you go to the exhibits of the complaint, they have a lot of the curriculum. And as you said, a, a lot of it's kind of a lot. I mean, you know, you've got SpongeBob sort of declaring there is no such thing as reverse racism. You have a whole discussion about how, for example, people of color cannot be racist. Uh, they can be prejudiced, but they cannot, it is not possible for them to be racist because racism is the application of prejudice plus power equals racism. And if you don't have power, you can't be racist. All of these things are concepts you'll hear, especially in some, some quarters of American higher education. But, um, you know, to say to an average American that a, an Asian person or a black person or Hispanic person cannot be possibly be racist, uh, leaves a lot of people scratching their heads so this is obviously a curriculum with a very strong point of view. There is no question about that. There is, it is a curriculum with a very strong point of view that is pretty far outside what you would call the mainstream of American ideology. But guess what, Sarah? That's not unlawful. That's not unlawful. I'm going to use three words that you don't often hear on this podcast, but you've heard before. Hot, sexy, and safer. Ah, yes, this is the, well, between based and cringe, David, this is cringe. <laughs> this, this is cringe. Is, this is your cringe case that you've talked about before about the sex ed uh, course and the lawsuit about the sex ed course. And Correct. That lawsuit lost. Yes. Yeah, this was a case that I, the very first case in my entire life I ever volunteered on. And this was when I believe, I could, goodness, was I 2L? Um, and a, um, a external, a, a public interest law firm solicited the help of some lawyers at the law school to do some research for them for a brief in a case that where basically the facts were that without parental consent, some students were, uh, there was a, an assembly held in a Massachusetts school and, uh, the assembly was the, the, uh, folks who ran the assembly were called hot, sexy and safer productions where they did a very vivid um, sex education presentation. And we won't go through all the facts because we've already done that. And they're pretty over the top. But these students were forced to watch this incredibly over-the-top sex ed presentation. How over-the-top? Mm, it kind of makes these slot PowerPoint slides in the complaint, and we'll put the complaint in the show notes, seem boring. Very boring by comparison to this case in Massachusetts. And according to, you know, the plaintiffs, they were physically forced to be there. Like they were prohibited from leaving. They had to see this really, really over the top presentation. And they filed suit. They lost at the district court, appealed to the first circuit and the first circuit. Nope, you lose. Why do you lose? Well, the bottom line is with that, you know, cutting through, cutting to the chase is that you as a parent don't have control over the curriculum that the school presents your child. That yes, you absolutely have control over the curriculum if you're homeschooling your child for sure, because you're the, you're the teacher, you're the owner of the school, you're the educator. But when you hand your child off to a public school and a charter school is a public school, the curriculum is in the hands of the public school. And your influence over the curriculum is really limited to persuasion. What can you persuade the school to do? What can you persuade the school board to do? But you don't have an inherent right once your kid is in public school to direct and control their uh, the curriculum that they see. 
Uh, and that's the core of this case is a, is a objection to curriculum. That's, that's what the core of this case is. Yep. So this is going to bounce around conservative Twitterverse, I fear, quite a bit. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of, I can't believe they did this, accepting all of the allegations is true, which is what we would right. do with a complaint regardless. Um, but I don't think there's going to be nearly enough discussion on where the unlawfulness is because I'm struggling to see it. Now, there is an interesting question about compelled speech in classrooms. Now, th- this is this is something that I think is worth a little bit of a discussion. Um, and that is... and. It essentially goes like this: um, as a normal as a normal matter, we aren't the government cannot compel us to say something we don't like. As a normal matter, the the government can't compel me to uh, advocate for or against a particular political uh, cause. The government can't compel me to salute the flag. For example, it's one of the most famous cases in American constitutional history. Um, the government can't compel school kids to salute the flag. But do you know where there's an, kind of an exception to this general rule that you can't compel speech? An academic exercise. Yeah, I was just going to say, imagine all of the, the <laughs> imagine every student who, the student, the teacher's like, why don't you read the part of Hamlet today? And they're like, no, that's compelled speech. Right. Or, you know, we often would have debates, I remember in junior high, and um, one of our debate topics with youth, euthanasia. And you were assigned which side you were on for obvious reasons. And I was on, uh, actually, I don't remember which side I was on. Um, But regardless, me and Travis, who I had a big crush on at the time, by the way, uh, (laughs) we were known as like the two most argumentative students. And so, of course, she paired us against one another and we argued about euthanasia. That would be compelled speech in a theory, but it was an academic exercise not to teach us about euthanasia, but to teach us how to argue with one another because we seem to like it so much. Yeah. When I was in law school, when I was teaching law school, um, I had a, an advocacy exercise and as half the class was going to be four, it was going to be plaintiff and half the class was going to be defendant. And I said, you're going to get to choose, but if it's unbalanced, I'm going to rebalance you. And so tell me which side you'd want and then tell me. And then what I did is I say, tell me if you have an absolute if you have a real conscientious objection to arguing the opposite, I will try to make sure I don't rebalance you. But if you don't, I might rebalance you. And I had to rebalance a few people. That's just totally normal stuff. Now, an interesting kind of gray area is under what circumstances could you be required to disclose intimate personal information, which that's getting more real worldish than an academic exercise. But I'm looking at a slide here that says you, in all caps, do not have to share your identities. You do not. Now, in the complaint, they said that, well, you know, there was social pressure to do so anyway. And that that wasn't wasn't really an option. But if the if, you know, in discovery will bear out how real that was. But if you do not have to do it, then it's not compelled speech. Also, did you, so I'll tell you the slide that I was most uncomfortable with, which was the teacher filled out that slide. Yeah. Uh, okay. First of all, she's 22 years old teaching this course. Yeah. Which made me deeply uncomfortable that a 22 year old is teaching students who are four years younger than her, uh, these topics, just because it is difficult and it yes. you know deserves a lot of maturity being brought to it and i wonder how much maturity there was um but like she's sharing her sexual orientation yeah. with her students yeah and then saying that she has a mental health disability with her yeah. students yeah um you know if i were the school i would have some questions about that pedagogy but again from yeah. a lawfulness standpoint i don't see it yeah, that's the thing is, you know, we we have to sort of take off the hat that says, is this good curriculum or bad curriculum? I look at this curriculum and I there's a lot of it that's really cringe. And I agree with you, Sarah, that that really stood out to me how open this this teacher was, this young teacher was about her 
sexual orientation, mental health struggles, um, socioeconomic background. I mean, there's a lot here. And there's a lot in the curriculum that, to put it charitably, is highly debatable. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> yes, that but was that's pr- why curriculum uh, school board seats matter. Curriculum yes. at the state education level matters. Go run for those positions. They are accountable. They are elected. Uh, that's why it's not unlawful to have a curriculum you don't like because it's not made by the president of the United States. This is all under local control. And I know people find that very frustrating. And they're like, yeah, but when I go complain to my school board, they don't listen to me. Well, then get elected to the school board. It is popularly elected position. Right. And that's the world. Which is which is very difficult to, to do. I mean, it's not a simple thing to do. But the, the bottom line is that's why these curricular fights are so intense. Um, they're so intense politically. This is why a California textbook reads different from a Texas text, textbook. We talked about this before. That's why some of the really draconian laws that are being considered uh, around um, education, around class and race and diversity, some state laws are being considered that co- seem extremely strict and perhaps even punitive, but might be lawful at the secondary school level, there's just an enormous amount of top-down control over curriculum. For better or worse, that's where the law is. And what this lawsuit is doing as a practical matter is challenging that top-down control. Now, there are circumstances where you file a lawsuit like this, even if your legal chances are not great, um, in the hopes to generate enough public pressure because the facts are bad. Even the, the law might not be on your side, but the facts are particularly, and we'll use the same word again, cringe, that you can generate some public pressure. And the lawyers have been very successful at generating some public outcry, maybe not necessarily in the, in the media spaces that will matter much to a more progressive charter school, um, but have certainly generated an outcry and is a reason why some people file complaints. And there's but a GoFundMe the account. And there's, there's that as well. There's that as well. Um, but yeah, the law here is rough. The law here is really, really rough if you're making a curricular challenge. And this, there's nothing new about this, guys. I can point you back into the 1980s where there was a major litigation effort um, to challenge curriculum in public schools on establishment clause grounds, Sarah on the grounds that American curriculum was establishing the religion of secular humanism. Um, do you know how those cases came out? They lost. <laughs> <laughs> they did, in fact, lose. They did, in fact, lose. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, Sarah, we have a guest, a guest who can talk about an uh, issue that in the green room you said we were wildly unqualified to talk about, but it's important to know. Yes. Uh, and so who is it? And what's he talking about? So today, our special guest is Chris Bogart. He is the chief executive officer, director, and co-founder of Burford Capital. This is a litigation finance firm. And I, you know what? We're not even going to talk about what that means. We're going to put a little time out on that. We're going to let him even explain that. Just a little bit of background. He was the general counsel at Time Warner which is an incredibly large company for those who are not sure. And before that, he was at Cravath, which is also known as the Death Star of white shoe law firms. So, uh, you know, incredibly well-trained lawyer who then goes into this whole field that I think most of our listeners have never heard of that I think is, well, at least right now, the future of commercial litigation. So Chris, okay, let's start with a very simple explainer. What do you do? <laughs> well, thanks, Sarah and David. Um, what I do is work in the field of commercial litigation finance. And then there are a couple of different pieces of litigation finance that we should come back and talk about. But commercial litigation finance is basically providing capital 
to companies or to their law firms against the underlying value of their litigation claims. So why are people doing that? Well, companies, as litigation costs keep rising and as litigation volumes keep rising, companies are not so excited about having all of those costs running through their P&Ls, through their income statements, and negatively affecting their profits. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of valuable litigation that companies do. And so we'll come in and pay the costs associated with a piece of litigation, um, thereby removing those costs from the company's income statement. Um, and in exchange for that, we'll, uh, we'll take a share of the outcome. Basically, what we're doing is, is creating effectively a corporate contingency fee model that lets companies hire hourly fee lawyers. You know, before litigation finance, you had a pretty stark choice. So when I was in my Time Warner job 20 years ago, you know, if I wanted to bring a piece of litigation, I either had to pay for it myself out of my budget or I had to go and find a plaintiff side contingency fee lawyer. And, you know, mostly those lawyers like to sue me instead of being on my side. And so I wasn't all that keen on the, the second choice. And so it really was down to the budget. Um, and companies run out of budgets. And so now this is a way for companies to go and hire the cravats and, and the hourly fee law firms of the world um, for their cases without having to break their budgets. Okay. So how, how does this work in terms of the contract? Presumably, you know, there's all these ethical rules on lawyers. The client is still the company, but you're here providing the money. How does that affect the contract? How does that affect pressure to settle sometimes? Walk us through what sort of some of the little sticky issues are. Yeah, the, the client is still the client. The lawyer is still the client's lawyer. Um, all that is happening here, it's no different than if the company goes off to a bank and borrows money. Um, the client uses the money from the bank to pay the lawyer or the client uses the money from me to pay the lawyer. The difference between me and the bank is that you have to pay the bank back if you win. Whereas we operate more like a contingency fee lawyer where you don't have to pay us back if you lose. So, you know, one thing I think uh, it's important for people to under, why, important for people to understand, because we've got a, a wide range of listeners here. Some folks who are law firm lawyers who are quite familiar with litigation costs. Uh, if you could kind of give us sort of a scale of the kinds of costs you're talking about, if you're talking about, say, a, a corporation hiring not not even the top top end law firm, but a leading law firm. What's a hourly rate for a senior partner at a law firm in a in in a good sized American city these days? Well, the, I'll give you first of all the shocking number, which is that we <laughs> have we have just in the in the wonderful legal profession managed to break through the two thousand dollar an hour sound barrier for. <laughs> for some high-end litigators. Um, that's not the average rate for a you know, good partner at a good law firm somewhere else. But you know, you'd, be, you'd be hard pressed not to be paying you know, $1,000 an hour and more. Um, and it's not just the $1,000 an hour. It's also the fact that litigation you know, done these days is an army of people including lots of young lawyers, and those young lawyers cost a lot of money too, hundreds of dollars an hour. So what that means is that in the average piece of litigation that we would finance, you're looking just to bring a case, a normal case through trial, you're looking at, you know, eight to $12 million. Whoa. What? <laughs> uh, okay. So you're not going to win them all. You need to make smart bets, though. You obviously are going to take cases that you think are going to win. Um, what percentage do you, like at the end of the year, you're like, okay, this percentage of our cases that we picked hit and we won and we got money versus the percentage, you know, we're going to lose 90% of our cases get money. So you're, you're engaging in a pretty rigorous front end evaluation. I would, I would presume. Yeah, so Burford, Burford's basically its own law firm. We've got 60 or 65 lawyers that have come out of those very same law firms. Um, and we spend a lot of our time looking at cases um, and exactly trying to, trying to figure out which cases we think are meritorious 
in which cases we'll, we'll produce some realistic damages and, and can be collected on as well. And those lawyers are doing that work. They are not doing any of the legal work. That's all being done within a law firm. That's correct. Wow. Interesting. So um, what's your typical sort of corporate client profile? I mean, uh, you know, you think of, say, a corporation with very, very, very deep pockets like uh, Disney or an Apple. I mean, they can fund as much litigation as they want. Um, but when I, in my commercial litigation days, uh, when I, especially when I was not in Manhattan and I moved into, and moved to Kentucky, a lot of the litigation costs for medium-sized firms, those, and this is back in the 90s, early 2000s, it was a real burden to the bottom line uh, for if you, unless you began to sort of scale up considerably. So are you working with the large corporations to medium to small size, or is there a particular kind of profile size range, corporate size range that's like your sweet spot? Well, for what we do, it's more about the cases than the size of the business. Um, so our we're, we're at the complex case end of the market, um, as you can see from the numbers that we were just talking about a minute ago. And so what that means is, is that lots of these clients are big companies, but they also include small companies, for example, that have innovative technology that, that they believe has been stolen by somebody else. Um, the, the key for us is more the lawyers. So our, our client base, if you will, are the, the big law firms, the Amlaw 200 law firms, and also the boutiques, the litigation boutiques that have spun out of them. Um, but it's a matter of economics. You know, we don't tend to do what I'll call middle market uh, legal cases. The, the numbers just don't don't work that well. But, you know, I'll, I'll try this out here for you guys because, you know, I've listened to this podcast for a long time and I love it. And I know that you have some tolerance for getting into the weeds. So let me yes. let me just give you <laughs> some. To that's a lot of tolerance. <laughs> let me tolerance. just give you the, the 45 second version, because you talked a minute ago about a common misconception about the Disney's and the Time Warner's of the world being large enough that this doesn't matter to them. You know, here's the here's financially what's going on and why this is happening. Assume you've got a case that's going to generate $100 million in profit, $100 million in, a, in an ultimate settlement or a, or a trial outcome, and it's going to cost you $20 million in legal fees to litigate that case, right? That seems like a pretty good cost return on cash for the company. But companies don't think about it that way. Because that $20 million flows through their income statement, it touches their operating expense line, and it reduces their earnings. And so if you're trading, let's say, at 15 times EBITDA in the market, and you EBITDA, just, you have to translate EBITDA. EBITDA. Sorry, EBITDA is, is earnings. Earnings before interest and taxes and so on. So a common measurement of, of corporate earnings. If you're trading at 20 times earnings, 15 times earnings, and you've just spent $20 million, that basically removes $300 million of market value from you. Now, now businesses do this all the time when they, when they incur cost because, because the market also gives them that same multiple on their revenue. But the market doesn't give you a multiple on your litigation outcomes. And so even though you're winning $100 million, you're taking a $300 million market value hit. And so it's actually destructive to shareholder value, even for big companies, to self-fund their own litigation. Whereas if I pay the $20 million instead, that leaves the income statement, you don't have the hit to market value, and they just get the benefit of whatever the net proceeds are. And that's why this is popular with, with companies of all sizes and shapes. You mentioned intellectual property as an area that works really well for this model. What are the other main areas that you would say you see the most often? It's really anything, any complex case that companies find themselves involved in. So antitrust cases, big, big and complex contract cases, um, you know, fraud, intellectual property and, and those kinds. What it tends not to be is, you know, it's not sort of, you know, non-competes and employment law and sort of workplace injury and things like that. What about bankruptcy? So we, we certainly do do bankruptcy work, and, and generally speaking, we're appointed by a bankruptcy court or a trustee um, to provide capital to pursue claims that the bankruptcy estate has. You know, what, what often happens in bankruptcy is, you know, the company goes bust, 
there's not very much cash left. The creditors want all the cash. So you, they take it out and you're left with a bankrupt estate that doesn't have any cash left in it. And so, but does have other value, valuable and viable claims. And so we'll go and put capital against those claims. But we've, we've been talking a bunch about the corporate side of this. Um, there are two other flavors of litigation funding going on in the world. Um, and we have on this podcast another litigation funder, in fact, um, whose name is David French. And because <laughs> it's a side business, Sarah, it's a side a business. Side. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? Well, litigation funding is really the, the application of somebody other than the client's money into a case. And so there's a long history of, of that happening in public policy and, and related litigation. So when, when interest groups litigate over issues, they are effectively engaging in a form of litigation funding. They're not doing it for profit, um, but they're nevertheless raising external capital and putting it to work in litigation. So that's another species of, of litigation funding. And the third species, which we don't do at all, is there is a there is a consumer litigation funding market in the United States as well, where plaintiffs in individual actions, injury actions, basically, um, will go and seek litigation funding to meet their living expenses while their case is progressing through the courts. Fascinating. So then let's also back up and talk about the history of this complex litigation funding, basically the history of Burford Capital largely. Um, how did this come about and how much time did you have to spend figuring out whether this was legal? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the uh, embarrassing answer, you know, I'd love, I'd love to say this was the product of a, of a brilliant business planning exercise with, you know, McKinsey style consultants or something. But, but in fact, the, the truth is far from that. Um, the reality of this came, this came about um, just about 20 years ago now when a university friend of mine um, had become a partner at one of the big law firms that was very reluctant to do any deals with its clients. It just wanted to be paid by the hour. And he had a pool of international clients um, who had the mindset that they really wanted their lawyers to have some skin in the game. And he was having trouble bridging that divide. Um, and I was having dinner with him one night and he was complaining to me about his lot in life as, as, as partners in large law firms often do. <laughs> and, uh, and he said to me, look, you've become sort of this money guy now. Can't you figure out something for this? So in fact, um, he and I and another partner in his firm figured out a path to just raise a little bit of capital, um, to finance his cases when the need arose. And I did that as a hobby, um, with candidly, no intention of turning it into a business or an industry. Um, but what happened in the chatty world of lawyers is people, other people found out that he was doing that and they were intrigued by it. And so I started to get phone calls saying, gee, you know, you're doing that for Latham and Watkins. Can you do that for our firm as well? And, you know, the demand kept on growing to the point where John Malone and I, my, my co-founder of Burford, decided that we would institutionalize this concept and, and raise real capital for it and, and take it on the road. That was in 2009. Um, we started with $130 million. Um, and today we've got a, a portfolio that is uh, more than $4.5 billion of, of litigation assets. So I mean you may not know this, you may not know this, but I just say that 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 uh, uh, story right there makes you a a chief weapon, uh, a key weapon in my ongoing war against Sarah in the in the battle over. Is it good to go to law school? No, not everyone is Chris Bogart. <laughs> I'm no, I just I just I would love it if uh, Chris, you could kind of walk us through your legal career. You're you started at Crevath and then. You didn't go from crevasse to multiple, multiple, you know, working with multiple billions of dollars. What was what was the path here? Well, I don't really want to get in the middle of the two of you on this topic. <laughs> now has spanned has spanned uh, many podcast debates, but you know, I probably do. My my history probably does fall more on the David side of the of the line here. 
I actually, when I came Thank out of you. undergrad, uh, I'm Canadian, as you can probably tell from from a drop about here and there. Um, I came out of undergrad in Canada, and I worked as a banker for a couple of years for what is now J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, and I decided that while that was interesting, I preferred you know advocacy to banking. Um, and so I went back to law school in Canada. And, uh, and I went to law school, and then I clerked for the Chief Justice of Ontario. Um, and wait, and time out. To- Your bio says that you were the gold medalist in law school, and we don't know what that means. Did you have to run a race, jump hurdles? <laughs> 100 meters, Sarah, 100 yeah. meters. There's no physical exertion involved <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, the Canadian gold medalist in Canada simply means, you know, number one ranked in the class. Um, so, so I clerked for the, for the court. And then I was actually planning to stay in um, in Toronto and practice law, uh, but here I'm going to I'm going to sort of feed into Sarah's narrative too. Um, I was also getting married at the time, and my wife was coming out of business school in Canada as well. And way back when, Canada wasn't all that friendly to women in finance, and so she was getting job offers in New York and getting turned down for the same kinds of jobs in Toronto. So we decided, what the heck, we'll move to New York for a couple of years. And I, uh, I fortuitously managed to land a job at Cravat. And so I started being a baby lawyer. And, um, you know, I did, I, I did the Cravat litigation thing for a number of years. Um, I had had the benefit in Canada. A big distinction is that you're not entitled to a legal aid lawyer in Canada unless you're likely to go to jail for quite a long time. Um, if you're only up for a short amount of jail time, you get the particular gift of, of a first or second year law student to defend you in court. And, <laughs> and uh, unlike the American practice where you're carefully supervised doing that, you're just thrown into the court here and the judges are supposed to watch over you. And so I had the benefit while in law school of doing a whole bunch of trial work, um, which made me sort of unusual when I came to, to New York among my colleagues. So anyway, I spent time at Cravath. Um, I got great experience there. I did a lot of work along the way for Time Warner, including some fascinating First Amendment litigation. And uh, when Time Warner's general counsel was retiring, um, they asked me if I would come from Cravath to, to take his place. So I did that. I, I spent some time at Time Warner, and then I migrated onto the business side. And I ran, I ran Time Warner's advanced technology business. Um, and really left the law altogether for a few years and became a technology investor. Uh, but as a sideline, I was doing this, you know, litigation finance thing. Um, and then basically the demand for that picked up and and I flipped into, into what I'm doing now. I rest is, my case, Sarah. Yeah, no, your case is not rested. Uh, is <laughs> Canadian law school... How similar is it to American law school? And then how hard was that transition graduating from Canadian law school and then being expected to take the New York bar and practice there? So Canadian law school is is pretty similar in organization to American law schools. And in fact, Canadian law schools are ABA accredited. Um, they're three that. years. They're three years. You take the same sort of first year contract toward property approach. I think the largest difference between Canadian law school and American law school is that there is less statutory law in Canada and more common law. And so law school education is a little bit more case law and writing and a little bit less statutory interpretation than there is in the U.S. Um, And uh, so but it doesn't equip you very well to take the New York bar. Nothing Um, does, though, in America either, in fairness. (laughs) No, it was a true. trick question. It's true. <laughs> learning, learning riparian rights was 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 a charm, but uh, but I got through that, and, and uh, on we went. That's really weird. I had a dream that someone was arguing with me about riparian water rights uh, last night. That that is what happens in my dreams. Don't know about you guys. Um, okay, is that I, a, is that not fa- that's a true story? You actually dreamed about yeah, riparian water rights. I, yeah, I wasn't going to share it because it's. I mean, now Disturbing. I mean you know. Yeah, it's disturbing. Uh, All right. I have some uh, future of this industry questions. One, you talked about how this really started, which was the billable hour model didn't work for all clients and it didn't even really work for all law firms. You are one answer to that. But for a variety of reasons, a lot of law firms are moving away from the pure billable hour as the only option they offer clients. And there's a lot more flat fee options coming. How does that affect litigation funding one way or the other? 
I think they're I think they're parallel but not overlapping paths. Um, you know, the the fundamental challenge for law firms is that they don't have balance sheets. In other words, law firms are not businesses that go and access the capital markets and you know sell public equity to investors and issue public debt and so on the way that companies do. And that's how Burford finances itself. Um, and so, until law firms, um, if ever, reach that point, then law firms are going to be inherently capital constrained. And, and the money that they're playing with is effectively their partner's own personal capital. Um, and and that, that really means that they don't have the financial flexibility to do everything that their clients want them to do. Now, you're seeing some interesting things in Arizona and uh, Arizona and other states right now about, about pushing the envelope in terms of what's going to happen with non-lawyer ownership of law firms. Um, England's already gone down that road. That was so, my next question, the British model. How would the British model affect you here? Well, it's an opportunity um, for us because what you can start to do is provide you know, different kinds of financing to law firms. Let me give you an example of that, of, of a deal that we've actually done in, in England where we're allowed to do this. You know, you've got a law firm that's interested in taking some risk um, but doesn't want to take all the risk on the cases that it does. It still wants to operate on a cash-based model. Um, and so this law firm has come to us and said, will you share risk with us on these cases? And we said, yes, that's something we're happy to do. And we do that in the United States as well. Um, but, but this law firm didn't love the price of the capital just for the risk sharing. And so instead of us charging a fairly high price for the capital, just that we were giving them. Think of that as the loan part of the equation. Um, they said, well, what about a lower price for the capital and we'll give you part ownership in the firm so that if the firm does well, you'll do well too. And that's in any other industry, a, a pretty unextraordinary transaction. It's not at all unusual to attach some warrants or some equity to a financing transaction, but it's very unusual in the legal industry. And that was the first time it had ever been done. Um, and we couldn't do that in the United States. And you mentioned that a couple states are playing around with changing their laws on that. Do you see much of a future? Is that going to sweep the nation? I think that it's going to be a, a long and slow road, but I do think that the end result at some point, maybe not even in my professional career, will be a transformation of the way that, that law firms are, are owned and managed. You know, just as you saw with investment banks, investment banks used to be structured like law firms. Um, Goldman Sachs used to be a partnership just like Cravap is. Um, and today it's a public, publicly traded shareholder owned debt financed company. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if law firms follow along that road slowly. And, well, real quick on that. Is that going to be a good thing just for the practice of law? Will it be a good thing for lawyers? Will it be a good thing for clients who benefits from something like that? Well, because uh, I think the law firm model is pretty broken right now. Well, I was just, I, I agree with you about that. Whether, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I think it is an inevitable thing given the current size and structure of big law firms. You know, the, the concept of the law firm, it seems to me, works pretty well when you've got a, a small, manageable group of people in actual partnership with each other um, who are collaborating on the law and their clients' needs. The, you know, Abraham sort of a, Lincoln model. the Abraham Lincoln <laughs> model or, you know, frankly, the, the model of a British barrister's chambers. I like that model, too. Um, when you now move to law firms that are global businesses with thousands of employees and billions of dollars of revenue, you know, you don't have any longer a genuine law firm partnership where people are collaborating. You have a big business. Um, and it seems run to be by now a little... people who generally don't do business for a living. That's the part that always like blows my mind is that law firms are run by lawyers. And I can't emphasize that enough. Law school teaches you nothing about running a law firm. It teaches you nothing about being a law partner for the most part. And so what you end up having are people who were good law students who then become good associates and those good associates become partners. And those partners then start running a global multi-billion dollar business and their training for that is having been an associate basically. Now, Sarah, you know that if you're smart in one area of life, that means you're smart in every area of life. <laughs> 
And I see law firm partners making insane bad business decisions. Well, there is some of that, but I will come to the defense of of the people running law firms a little bit. Um, You know, the, the reality of big law firms is they also, especially on the corporate side of those businesses, do a lot of big, complicated deals. And if you're a deal lawyer at a big law firm for your career, you're just as business savvy and sophisticated as your client is. I agree um, that transactional lawyers are smarter than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> or wilier. <laughs> Something. <laughs> uh, all right. Disclosure side. Uh, that's why I asked about bankruptcy a little bit. In bankruptcy, of course, your involvement is fully disclosed to the court and all of the parties, I would imagine. How does that play in an IP litigation case? Do folks know you're there at all? Uh, probably not, um, in much the same way that folks don't know uh, anybody who is involved in a non-bankrupt, non-class action context. Um, you know, again, it's, you know, we have a set of disclosure rules in, in this country that are pretty narrow. Um, we ask for the disclosure of public equity interests. And that's a conscious choice by the court system about how broadly they want interests disclosed. Really, there's, you know, what are, what, are you, what are we getting at when we talk about disclosure? You know, the principal rationale for disclosure behind litigation cases has been for judges to be able to test for conflicts. Um, and so we've decided not to cast that net too widely so that judges you know, can can live their lives and not be conflicted out of every single case. So if you're a judge and you also have Verizon telephone service, that doesn't mean that you can't sit on a case that's involving Verizon. Um, you just can't sit on a case involving Verizon if you own a bunch of their shares. Um, this is a little bit like speech um, regulation to, to sort of bring David back to his, one of his true loves. <laughs> you know, this is this is a little bit of sort of time, place, manner restrictions. Um, we can write whatever disclosure rules we want about the economic and political interests behind litigation, um, as long as they are dispassionate. So if we want to say, as courts or as court systems, we want to know every single economic interest and every single political interest behind a case. We want to know, you know, if there's money, we want to know if there's been money donated to an organization that has brought on this case. We want, we want really to know all the tentacles. There's no reason that we can't write a rule like that, but it has to be a rule that is of general application. Um, there's not space for a rule that says, oh, we only want this kind of disclosure or this other kind of disclosure. Well, Congress surely could pass a law similar to the campaign finance side that says litigation funding has to be disclosed to the court. But I haven't heard a whole lot of appetite for that. Have you? Well, I agree that there's not a lot of appetite for it because I don't even know how you would define it exactly. So what is what is litigation funding in the context of a statute that would survive your rigorous analysis? You know, is a, is a contingency fee litigation funding? Is a bank loan? Is a private equity interest? Is a donor to David's public interest organization? Um, there's not really a viable definition, which is why I think you'd have to say, you know, we want these kinds of economic interests disclosed, whatever they happen to be and wherever they came from. But then you have to ask yourself, why? When I was litigating on occasion, uh, when I would sue, say, a university or um, other governmental entity, attorneys, whether it's an AG's office or more often they would hire out to a big firm, uh, they would uh, they would seek in discovery uh, the identities of donors to ADF or, you know, whoever I was working with. And w- we would always resist that <laughs> request. Yeah, it, it uh, on occasion, it would be made an issue at some point in the litigation that uh, the plaintiff in the case was using lawyers funded by somebody else. Right. And why were they asking? Right. What What's the legitimate purpose in asking? And the answer is there isn't one. It's it's harassment and it's it's a frolic and detour. It's trying to stay away from the merits of the case. Right. They were trying to say that the plaintiff was a tool of some nefarious bad people that um, 
a jury would want to know about or would be relevant for a jury? Not, not really, <laughs> not, not really. Well, and that's why I come back to the why. Like, other than letting judges establish conflicts, um, and judges are presumably not buying stock in litigation finance companies, um, other than establishing conflicts, what is the legitimate purpose? Right. And that was uh, a version of the argument that we, we made, which was more just sort of nunya business. Uh, so <laughs> the, the, le the legal version thereof. All right. Last question, Chris. There is some first-year associate sitting at Cravath who hasn't seen sunlight in several months. <laughs> and uh, they're hoping one day to be you. That's their dream. What is the most fun job you've had in all of this? I think my current job is the most fun. Um, Why is it the most fun? It, because it combines um, an incredibly rich intellectual litigation environment. So we look at, you know, around 1,500 cases a year. And these are hard, complex, interesting cases. So I get to see many more cases in this job than I ever would as a law firm partner, for example. Um, but at the same time, I don't have to do, you know, a fair bit of the drudgery that comes with, you know, pretrial litigation. Now, the, the downside is you lose the adrenaline rush of standing up in a courtroom. Um, and that is a, a big thing to give up for a litigator. Um, but the intellectual challenge of this is extraordinary. And then just the sheer fun of growing a new business that is, you know, going down a path that hasn't really gone down before. That's, that's just a fascinating way to spend time. That's pretty fun. I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation because I find the whole thing fascinating. You know, David and I talk a lot about these appellate constitutional yada yada cases, but the vast majority of legal work in the country from a financial standpoint is happening in commercial litigation. And this is a, a new frontier that I think people don't give enough time and thought to. That was my job for the first chunk of my career was commercial litigation. I was one of those people who didn't see the sun uh, working <laughs> in a Manhattan office building. And I will never forget the sensation when we first moved to Manhattan, first year of our marriage, just married. My wife is living her best life. She's a student at NYU. After classes is, are over at like two or three in the afternoon, she's heading down to Central Park and reading books in the park and, you know, surrounded by these, you know, majestic apartment buildings in the greatest city in the world. And I'm just looking at it out a window. Hey, at least and you had then, a window. Honestly, like my, I, I had a good friend who worked at Cravath and I just remember, um, him consoling himself with like a new Ferragamo tie every few months. <laughs> like, at least I can buy a Ferragamo tie. And I'm like, I hope it keeps you company. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, pre-dawn hours. So it would be like this. I would leave before Nancy would wake up. I would arrive back at the apartment after Nancy was asleep. Good marriage. So, yeah, it was gr it was great. It was a great way to spend your first year of marriage with somebody you married and you barely knew. So, yeah, it was fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll see I'll see that and raise you. I arrived at Cravath. I arrived at Cravath as I told you before, newly married. And the next day, they put me on a plane to California, and I worked on a trial in California. Uh, for a year and did not <laughs> step foot again in the New York office for my first year of, of work at Cravath while my wife worked in Manhattan. Wow, well, you just guys. beat me. That, yeah. <laughs> I, I bow to you, sir. <laughs> that and now, is... to return to the argument of whether you should go to law school, if that <laughs> sounds fun to you guys, by all means. <laughs> but not everyone it's... gets to grow up and be Chris or David, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, you should have stopped because I was winning. I was you winning are. the argument until that anecdote. That, that, oh gosh, it it's fun. always a back and forth. Always a back and forth. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Well, thanks for having me on. You guys have a fantastic podcast and, uh, and I really enjoy listening to it.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.